Hello, welcome to the Science of Policy podcast. My name's Toby and today I'm joined by Professor Ottmar Edenhofer. Professor Edenhofer is one of the world's top experts on climate change and environmental policy. I'm going to read you selected highlights from his biography, but excuse me while I first take a very deep breath. He is the scientific director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research and of the Mercator Research Institute on Global Commons and Climate Change. He's served as a lead author and co-chair for the IPCC, as well as taking advisory roles, among others, for the German federal government, the OECD, the European Commission, the World Bank, and, as it happens, the Vatican. He's Professor of the Economics of Climate Change at the Technical University of Berlin, and he has a background in economics, obviously, and I'm delighted to say philosophy. And finally, he's the chair of the recently established European Scientific Advisory Board on Climate Change, which we're about to discuss in some detail. So, Otmar, welcome to the podcast. Very nice to be here. Now, listeners might have picked up that you have something of an interest in climate change from that introduction. But I mentioned that your background is originally in philosophy. And as far as I can see, you've worked in public health and humanitarian aid, and you once belonged to a Jesuit order. So if you don't mind me asking, what's the journey that gets you from there to here? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a, a good question. Um, I have to admit, I, I was always interested in environmental issues uh, in, in local pollution. So when I when I grew up in the rural area, so we had some experience with uh, with with water pollution, and I found this uh, very outrageous and also quite uh, inefficient to pollute nature to such an extent. And then I grew up uh, basically uh, during the the publication of the Club of Rome and the two oil price crises. And I had a strong interest also in, in biology and in natural science. But then I thought solving all that problems, it might be good uh, to become an economist and a philosopher. So in, in that sense, I had always an interest even during my work in the war in Bosnia. So I never lost that. And I always uh, like to, to think in a, in a structured and in a formal way about ethical issues, but also about economic issues. Yeah. I remember the days when what it meant to be an environmentalist or interested in the environment was to be concerned about things like, as you say, local pollution or acid rain or the hole in the ozone layer. That was a big thing. Climate change and carbon emissions haven't even crossed our mind. No, no, it was not about global warming. It was about about local local pollution. It was also the debate about, uh, in Germany at least at this time, about uh, nuclear energy and energy efficiency. And the publication of the Club of Rome basically brought to the, the broader public, uh, brought to the attention that there might be at some stage uh, we are running out of fossil fuels. And and this is, this is not the case. Uh, given the limiting disposal space of the atmosphere, we have today an oversupply of fossil fuels. But at this time, Many people thought, so we are running out of oil, gas and coal. Yeah, indeed. So before it was a real existential concern, it was still uh, a kind of pressing short term issue. Or so we thought. So then we fast forward a number of years, let's say, to the present day. And here you are in charge of a major European science advice institution focusing particularly on climate issues. Um, it's a pretty new organization. So, so tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, it is, it is a, a quite a new institution. It is called the European Scientific Advisory Board on Climate Change. So it's a quite long acronym. And it is an independent body. And uh, so our task is to provide uh, scientific knowledge. Um, and we should 
evaluate policies and also uh, in particular we we should uh, make a proposal about the 2040 target of the EU and this is basically also in the European climate law so so we are not just a, a body of experts and academics uh, thinking uh, how wonderful the world would be if they would run the business but it's to provide the best science for the decision makers uh, in the parliament uh, in the commission and also in the council i see so you're not in any way self-created you were created by the policymakers to advise them we are not at all self-created so this was a a very thoughtful selection process uh, so they basically want to uh, appoint 15 members with a broad range of of expertise from engineering to agriculture economics adaptation experts uh, quite diverse but but mainly uh, dependent on the scientific qualification so we are in the interface between science and 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 policy it's very much uh, similar to what you have in the uk uh, the the climate change committee okay I mean, so clearly nobody's going to be asking why we need science advice on climate change. That's very clear. But I, I wonder why we need to create an institution like the uh, Climate Change Advisory Board. And I don't ask this in a defensive way at all or in a hostile way. It's meant to be a friendly question. But I can see from your biography that you have already served on or worked with basically all the major science advice institutions um, that already give advice on climate change. So why did the drafters of the EU climate law want to create another one? Because it is, it is not another one. So, of course, there are many, many experts around the globe. And uh, so, uh, but, but, but the, 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 so if a few academics sit together and say, let's write a report where we can provide some recommendations to the decision makers, that's nice. But here, this is very specific. So, because it's it's a recommendation, but the recommendation we provide has to be taken into account by the Commission in their decisions and in their consideration. And of course, the Parliament wants that if the Commission departs from our recommendation, that the Commission provides some kind of of justification. So, we we are we are part of a let's say a decision process. We are not taking the decision. Others uh, take the decision, the policymakers take the decision, but we are really, our mandate is to come up with the recommendation based on the best available science. And then basically the, the commission has to respond. Many uh, academic advisory boards are established, but decision makers are not obliged to then to respond and to comment why they depart or why they follow. Hmm. So it's a political move on the part of the European Parliament, as it were, to say, not only do we want you to use scientific advice, but we want to specify who gives that advice to you and we want to see it. And as you say, if we don't, if you don't follow it, then we want you to explain to us why not. Yes, that's right. That's right. And this is, uh, should facilitate then a, a quite structured debate uh, about this issue and to have information about, uh, about the pathways and, and, and all these things. So it, it's it's a different body, and I would say this is a new type of body uh, which are now emerging. So the IPCC, for example, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, so they cannot recommend anything. So this is just a body which evaluates the scientific literature. They write a summary for policymakers. The summary for policymakers has to be adopted by the governments, but in the end, it's it's just a description. It's what what we find in the literature. It's it's not so much a recommendation 
and and this is now a, a, an independent body, but it is it is basically a body which uh, which has a, a very specific political mandate, a narrow mandate, but it has a mandate. Yeah, and do you get into the nitty gritty details of of recommending things like? you know, technical limits and detailed implementations and so on? Or do you work at a, a more general level or at a higher level? Yeah, it depends what you what you mean with the higher level. So, for example, for the uh, 2040 target, we basically proposed uh, an emission reduction between 90 to 95% relative to 99. And we said, basically, the budget should be within the limit between 11 and 14 get on CO2. And then basically we... Uh, explored the, the pathways which enables us uh, reaching such goals. So, so it's high level, but nevertheless, it is very specific, and it is not a point recommendation. We we, we recommend the range. We take into account uncertainties, and what is also quite important, uh, we have taken into account, and we there was a challenge how to deal with normative issues. So. So normally in, in science, we are trained to say there is a clear fact-value distinction. So the science is basically responsible for the, for the facts and the, the sphere of policy is responsible for values. And here you can see basically that this, uh, this old fact-value distinction collapses because uh, if you recommend something, it is inevitable that you have to take into account values. Now, the, the problem for us is this, as in our role as scientists, we are not in a position to say uh, there is just one set of values which are the right ones. And uh, when it comes, for example, what is the fair share uh, for the EU? So then several uh, justice principles can be and has to be taken into account. And then we provide a full range of that. So that's that's uh, and that's a quite interesting thing and always a challenge when basically scientists. Uh, take into account the decision-making problem of a policymaker. So how to deal then with, with the, the, the values and the facts, that, that's, that's a challenge. But it seems to me this is now the, um, the new issue because neither is, can science be relevant without embedded in a, in a broader decision context, nor can uh, policymaking um, uh, fulfill its task when basically ignoring uh, fundamental scientific insights. Right. I mean, this is something that science advisors grapple with and have grappled with for a very long time, as you know, like how far across that fact-value distinction we're able to step and still preserve our role as, as scientists of kind of, uh, as, as the bearers of factual evidence. And I hear what you're saying that the business of making recommendations, so saying you ought to do something rather than just these things are true facts about the world, that makes it, by definition, a requirement that you can cross the fact-value line. But on the other hand, I wonder if you could say a bit more about why, in, in your case, in the case of your advisory board, this is a big deal. Because don't you actually find yourselves in the position of having the values, the targets, the political objectives set in advance by policymakers and decided and written down, in fact, written down in law in many cases? I mean, if they're asking you for recommendations about how to achieve a particular policy objective, that they've decided should be achieved, can't you basically take that evaluative component as an input and simply give advice contingent on that? So essentially saying, since you tell me that you value this particular outcome, here's how the science says you can get there. Uh, first of all, the, the most important thing is if you if you basically spell out what are the implications uh, of political decisions which have been already taken, 
this in itself is a, a very healthy exercise. And I several times got the response from our report to say, oh, this is really, these are the implications of our decisions because Europe wants to become carbon neutral by 2050. And we said 90% is, is, is something which is along the lines of uh, a cost-efficient uh, uh, reduction pathway. If you want to do a little bit more because you accept that, that there's a gap between the feasibility and the fair share, you could go to 95. So in, in, in that sense, then policymakers realize uh, the full range and, and the full weight, so to say, of, of the decisions they have already taken. In, in, in that sense, this is a quite healthy thing that scientists remind policymakers um, sometimes uh, about the implications of, of decisions. So, and, and this is in itself a, a very good thing. And I wouldn't say we, we have gone too far away from that perspective because neither the, the normative judgments we have taken into account, they are very much rooted in, in the value system of, of the EU. It's not, it's not the value system of 15 scientists, we try to basically embed this in in this broader value universe of, of the European Union. Does this mean that some of your members are philosophers, ethics experts? No, not, not ethics experts, but uh, I would say this is a group of quite enlightened people. Uh, uh, they, 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 are, they are able to deal with, with the fact-value challenge uh, without, so to say, the, the, the problem is always... Uh, in the past, we have seen many scientists, uh, they try to tell policymakers the truth, which basically means they want to, to tell them this is just one pathway. Uh, there is only one way uh, to achieve this, and you have to follow exactly what we have uh, you recommended. So this is not, not the right way. And in that sense, uh, the interaction between science and, and, the, and the policymakers and scientists and policymakers is very much a... A social learning process. And I wonder how much interaction there is between yourselves as the advisors and the policymakers. I mean, obviously, there's a conversation at the end, but are there discussions along the way as well? No, it's it's a conversation at the end. So we basically deliberated uh, about about what we wanted to recommend. We evaluated over a month uh, 1,000 scenarios. Uh, we filtered these scenarios, uh, and then in the end, we came up with five to seven scenarios, which basically uh, we perceived as plausible and uh, fulfilled some feasibility constraints. And then this is something which we in the end provided. And then we had a, uh, when we published the report, we had a meeting with the commission and we discussed it with them. But uh, we take this very seriously uh, that we are independent and we want to be independent and we want to be perceived as independent. Yeah, good. Well, so let's get into the details a bit on that. Are there particular measures that you've taken to ensure your independence? And as you say very smartly, also to ensure that you can be recognized as independent. For instance, I see that your membership is public, right? Anyone can find yeah. out who you are and check out your background. Yeah, yeah that's that, all the 50 members, their publication, their bio and, and, and all sorts of things. And, and then also, so we, we, we basically, we were silent uh, during our deliberation. We, there was no interaction about the substance of the report at the very end. We basically uh, gave a presentation uh, to some of the technical staff, but also uh, to a few other people in the commission. We published this. Okay, sure. But I mean, there's another dimension, I think. I mean, 
yes, it's great to close the doors and, as you say, remain silent while you deliberate. But even with the luxury of the closed doors and that protected space for your deliberation, you're still conscious. The people in the room are surely still conscious that this is a very lively and controversial, in many places, conversation. And that your recommendations and any policies that end up being based on them are going to spark disagreement and and be controversial themselves you don't need to have a lobbyist banging on your door to feel that so do you think or let me ask that more neutrally what influence do you think that political awareness had for you either on the processes that you use perhaps to try to to account for them or maybe on the deliberations or the outcomes themselves um i would say it 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 i never felt that uh we 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 thought okay we cannot say this and that because there is uh, there are powerful lobby groups or it is not appreciated by the policymakers. But of course we are not uh, operating and we are not le- living in a vacuum. And in in that sense, I would say uh, we we be very careful how to communicate. Communication always means uh, the meaning of words, the meaning of concept. This is something. It's it's not about your intention. What do you want to say? But in in the end, so to say, how how concepts are used in 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 the broader public, and we basically invested a lot of time to to make our message, our recommendations as as clear as possible, right? So in in, in that sense, I would say this is a reflection. So to say, we 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 want to communicate uh, effectively, which basically means we we want that our report is perceived according to our knowledge and according to our attention. So in that sense, of course, we, we are part of a global debate. We are also part of a um, of the international scientific community. And, and also we, 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 we basically evaluated the scenarios. We uh, used uh, uh, some of the models. We had interaction with, with modelers and, and, and also with the data and evaluate the data. Um, but but, but uh, we never... We had never discussions in, in the sense that uh, uh, that we are concerned about any kind of political pressure or about the some negative uh, response from from lobby groups, be it uh, from the industry or from the NGO community. Okay, and was there any internal discussion among yourselves about how strongly to phrase your conclusions? You know. Once you decided what the substance was of what you want to say, did you then talk about whether it was wiser to come out very strongly or be diplomatic, for instance? I think, so what was our task and what was our mandate? We should come up with the recommendation for the 2040 target. And I think we, we have been crystal clear, 90 to 95%. We, we, we have basically defended in the report the range. The 90% uh, leans to the... Uh, to the cost-effective or the cost-efficient pathway, and we take into account some environmental and some technological feasibility issues. And then the 95, we thought, so to say, how how far can we go? And basically, um, uh, we want to close the gap between the highest ambition level and 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 the fair share. And then we basically come up with uh, so to CDR, carbon dioxide removal, is important before 2030 and after 2050, and also uh, mitigation action outside the EU. I think that's quite crystal clear, and it is it is plain language, not credible, diplomatic. I would say everybody can understand this, and it can be debated. 
Yeah, and having seen the communications you put out so far, especially over the summer, it looks to me from the outside and as a non-expert, clearly like that's been achieved. And then hearing you say that you want it to be clear so that then the debate could be based on a clear statement of the evidence, that I think is a good way of thinking about it. And the message that you came up with as a result was actually pretty strong. Yeah, it was a strong message. But again, the strong message came from the fact that the EU uh, uh, basically decided already to become carbon neutral by 2050. And if you do the calculation to between 90 to 95 percent, so um, uh, still in 2040, we, we have some fossil fuels in, in the system. We want to be carbon neutral. We were quite explicit, even if we take into account a lot of demand side reactions. Uh, so CDR, uh, carbon dioxide removal technologies remain uh, uh, very crucial. So in that sense, it's, uh, it is a clear message. And uh, there was no need for that to be diplomatic. Yeah, that's very well put. And given that, do you have a specific intention or even a mandate to communicate beyond policymakers to the general public? Uh, I, I would say, uh, first of all, uh, we the mandate is to come up with a recommendation. And this recommendation has to be taken into account by the commission, specific decision makers. This is our, our primary task. And of course, we want to be understood by the broader public uh, in the parliament uh, and, and also in, in the broader civil society. And I think for the commission and the parliament, they understood the message quite clearly. And uh, so they realized how ambitious and, and we are, should be and what challenges are ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And do you intend then to comment on the debate on what happens next? Will you, I mean, will you yourself and the other experts on the advisory board like follow the public conversation and chip in and contribute as it continues? Or do you intend to just kind of deliver your report and walk away? It depends a little bit how the how the debate evolves. So if if there are specific misunderstandings or twists in the debate, which we feel uh, this is a, a misinterpretation of the report, then they will definitely respond. But as a scientific advisory board, I think we should not. Uh, so in, in in the range of possible or plausible interpretations. So we, sh we should not be involved in too much in this debate because this is now a document which can and should be used by the parliament, by the commission, but also by the, the broader civil society. Yeah. And one would hope there'd be enough advocates for your work in the political arena without you having to wade in and do that yourself. Yeah. So there will be some advocates, there will be pros and cons. I think that's how the whole thing will, will evolve. And of course, so the Commission has now the right to say, okay, we have taken into account all these aspects and we come up with a less ambitious or even a more ambitious target. So they are the policymakers. Our task was is to provide the, the, the best available science. And, and let me highlight this. So, so best available science does not mean uh, there is no uncertainty. This does not mean that there might be a turnout in the future that we basically have underestimated some costs uh, and we have overestimated other costs. So uh, it, it's important that uh, to see or to perceive scientists and science in such an endeavor as, as part of a social learning process and not just as a truth-telling machinery for the king or the queen. And then the, the, the queen or the king decides in, with all the wisdom 
with, with any deliberation. So this is not, not how democratic societies work, right? It's a, a pluralistic democratic society rely on, on pluralism. They rely on, on science. They have to deal with, uh, with values. So in that sense, it's a complicated process. And, and everybody, uh, the policymakers and the scientists have to play the role. And I think this is one of the miracles of, of democracy that most of the time we perceive democracy just as a, a voting machinery. But uh, democracy has also ep epistemic qualities. And an epistemic quality is because uh, democracies can deal with, with pluralism. They can deal with uh, different judgments and, and, and all these things. And, and this is, from my point of view, one of the, the great uh, advantages of a democratic society because in the end, It relies on, on judgment, on deliberation, on exploration. And all these things allows then societies to learn. And, and science is, is part of this uh, learning process. We have our own role. Others have others' role. And, and in that sense, based on this division of labor, we hope that uh, we can create institutions which in the end help us to absorb the best knowledge. And, and this is also the idea, the whole idea of, Of, of enlightenment, right? Well, uh, so I can't resist pursuing that line of thought a bit, but, uh, but let the record show that you brought this topic up and not me. Because I think what you just said is very interesting. I mean, democracy, I guess, is usually seen uncontroversially as a decision-making process, right? And one with this particular quality that when it works, it's supposed to be able to find a way through the fact of plurality and disagreement and come up with policies which respect that plurality to the degree that's possible, right? But if I understand you rightly, you're saying something different from that or something more, that democracy as a, as a practice doesn't just help make decisions. It can also be, it can also contribute to our understanding of the world. It can, it can contribute to our knowledge of facts. Is that what you meant when you said it's an epistemic process too? So democracy like as a way to gather more knowledge as well as as a way to decide how to deal with that knowledge. Yes, this is exactly what I'm saying. And, 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 and they are basically, uh, there, there's a, a literature on this. So, so how diverse juries, so to say, are able to absorb knowledge and create knowledge and, and uh, disseminate knowledge in a much better way than, than, than an autocratic king or an autocratic queen, right? Or the philosopher king of Plato. Yes, yes, uh, that, mm. that's right, that's right. So either the philosopher king or, or, or some sort of, of omnipotent uh, uh, decision maker, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Or a bunch of technocrats, I guess. Very interesting. So, okay, what next? You published a set of recommendations this summer, which we've talked about. How long a break do you get now before your next call to <laughs> set the world to rights? Yeah, so the next one will be a, a report where we try to figure out and to explore the policy consistent so do we have the right policies in place that we can really achieve this because these are scenarios these are goals but in the end what we are doing now not only at the european union at the european level so to say we do this also at the national level we try to figure out what kind of policy instruments work which kind of policy instruments uh, do not work right so in in germany for example we had a very heated debate about our heating systems and, and how to, to transform them. 
uh, and and it's still ongoing, but it's it's all about policy instrument. What the best way should we work with bands? Should we work with standards or should we work with prices? So it's what's the best way how to transform an economy. So in that sense, this will be one of the next reports. And over the year, we will also uh, provide a report on carbon dioxide removal technologies. So, uh, and this is this is important because we highlight this also in the report. So this is one way to 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 fill the gap between the highest possible uh, ambition and the fair share. So there there's some some gap here. By 2039, 2040, we will still have some residual emissions in the system, and this has this residual emissions have to be compensated by this removal technologies. A broad range of technologies, ranging from direct air capture combined with carbon capture and storage, bioenergy plus um, carbon capture and storage, biochar, afforestation, and so on. All these options are worthwhile to be considered carefully in this context. And, and also the CDR technologies do not only allow to absorb carbon from the atmosphere, uh, it is also uh, hopefully a way where we basically can compensate temporarily overshoot of, of temperature because it's very likely that we overshoot. But then in the end, uh, we can we can bend the curve. And and some people might, might, might perceive this as mitigation, so to say, emission reduction is a way how to avoid harm in the future. This CDR technology is a kind of cleaning up the mess we already did. All right. So then this work, I understand that your mandate in general comes from the European climate law, but then for specific pieces of work like this one, is this something you decide for yourself to do? Or is this also handed down from Parliament or the Commission somehow? So this is something which we, so we, we are basically, we are completely independent in our work program. Even even So we would even have, let's say, the freedom to say we don't want to talk about the 2040 target, which would be a little bit out, a little <laughs> bit awkward, uh, because that that's the mandate. But by and large, we are we are quite uh, independent and free in 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 basically, um, um, yeah, laying out the our, our work program. But of course, we are interested to 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 be relevant, and 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 for the decision making process. And CDR is something which is now discussed in in the European unions about certification and the whole governance structure uh, will 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 be discussed in the next few years and I think uh, we are basically that's the that's the perfect time uh, to contribute that's great I think it's perhaps time to draw this conversation to a close but I do want to express my very sincere thanks and appreciation it's kind of a privilege to be here at the birth or shortly after the birth of, of a new science advice institution in Europe and to learn what you're thinking about and how you're managing it all. So, um, Professor Ottmar Edenhofer, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with me and with our audience. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to be here. The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapea. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruchuk. Sapea is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe.
We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism, and as such, we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. And this last bit is particularly good. <laughs>